You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. And if you caught last week's episode, you may recall that I said we were going to do sort of a fun series of one-offs, just kind of a grab bag of kinds of people who I've wanted to talk to for a while. Um, We ended up scrapping that plan. (laughs) And here is why. Again, if you caught last week's episode, you know we spoke with Molly Boz, the cook in Bon Appetit's Test Kitchen. And if you didn't catch it, it's a really fun, lively, entertaining interview. I highly recommend you go and put it on after you listen to this one. But I so much enjoyed talking to Molly that I thought it would be fun to keep talking to people at Bon Appetit. And they said, hey, why don't you talk to our editor-in-chief, Adam Rappaport? And I said, that would be great. I would love to talk to your editor-in-chief, Adam Rappaport. And this interview, our our chat was interesting because the first half of it is not so much about his day-to-day. A lot of it is about kind of what he hoped to achieve when he became editor-in-chief, but also just what an editor-in-chief even is now. What it means to be the editor-in-chief of a magazine at a time when magazines, you know, are also kind of brand portfolios, I think, as we say at one point. Uh, Yes, that word brand. It kills both of us, but you can't avoid it now. Every magazine is a website. They produce video. They produce podcasts. Every magazine is a little multimedia empire, essentially, if it's successful. So what does it mean to be an editor-in-chief if you're not, you know, just nose down in a paper publication that comes out monthly anymore. And then also we get into his day-to-day. This is an episode that talks about his breakfast, his coffee, how he runs meetings. So you're going to get all that stuff in the back half. I had a lot of fun. I think it's a really interesting discussion about media and working in media. So if you like to nerd out on that kind of stuff, I think you'll really enjoy it. Have fun. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Adam Rappaport. I am the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, but I'm also the editorial director of Epicurious.com, which is our sister brand. Interesting. So you're kind of you're you're, you're running a little food empire, essentially. Yeah, point. food then, media empire baron type. Thing. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I'm a robber baron of food. Uh, <laughs> and then also within Bon Appetit, we have our two verticals, healthyish and basically. How long have you been the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit now? My first issue, because back in the day, we used to measure it by magazine issues, was May 2011. I got the job at the very end of 2010. But there was this sort of unusual transition period where the existing staff of Bon Appetit was still based in LA. Yeah. So BA and Arc Digest were LA-based publications that Condé Nast owned. And the end of 2010, Condé decided to move both brands back to New York into the Condé Nast building at the time in Four Times Square. And they said, we're going to hire new editor-in-chiefs, bring on whole new staffs. I got the job. And then I needed to sort of hire a whole new staff back here while we were still producing three issues out there. That gets at something interesting about kind of your tenure here, which is you kind of showed up at a transition point for food media, right? Like this was, you came from GQ, correct? Yes. You were style editor? I was a style editor. I was there for about 10 years. And so this was 
a moment where, you know, Gourmet, I believe, also was shuddering, right? That Gourmet was... shuddered 2009? Like, just, I'm going to have to fact check, but just sort of after the recession. So you were coming in and kind of rethinking what this magazine was going to be in some ways. Yeah, I mean, my feeling was, at the time, there wasn't a lot sort of current feeling or that interesting about what was going on in food media. You know, this was before Lucky Peach or before Gather Journal or before Cherry Bomb or a lot of these sort of cool food journals, uh, Instagram had yet to launch. Yeah, So it's, it's hard to imagine food media, food culture without Instagram. Yeah, that, that's really a sort of uh, like BCAD type yeah. thing, right? So, <laughs> you know, there was the magazines and I just like, ah, okay, they were fine. I, I did not love Bon Appetit at the time. I didn't really read it. And I, I thought there was a lot of interesting things going on in magazines at the time. I thought at GQ we were doing a lot of good work. You know, obviously Adam Moss at New York Magazine was doing amazing stuff at the time. You know, Wired, Chris Anderson at the time. There's there's a lot of provocative, interesting magazine making. I didn't feel that that magazine making was reaching into the world of food media and food magazines. What was it that you wanted to bring to food media that you were seeing elsewhere? So, you know, you can really nerd out in terms of like magazine architecture and design and, and how a magazine works. But I, I, I felt what I wanted to do was I wanted to make, instead of making a food magazine, I wanted to make a really good magazine that was about food. Okay. Um, and what is that distinction? Well, I think that let's, can we get sort of complex architected magazine packages in there? Can we get beautiful design that really sort of grabs your eye? Can we get photography that is not the typical photography? Can we, you know, it, the stuff that tr hopefully will stop you on, on the page and make you think and like appreciate it, make you smile and not just give people what they've been getting and enjoying, but like let's give them something new and, and, and make them think. Yeah, not just a package of recipes. Yeah, and, of. and photos. And, and I think what was interesting about 2010-11 was media was trailing, food media was trailing behind uh, the restaurant world. So if you looked out there, you're like, oh, wow, there's like all these chefs wearing skinny black jeans with lots of tattoos and opening kind of cool restaurants and it felt very of the moment. And David Chang had already started doing David Chang's thing at Momofuku in the East Village. But I didn't feel that there was any food media brands that sort of embraced and reflected the progressive nature of the restaurant slash food world. Yeah. Like food was going kind of indie rock at that point for, I guess. Yeah, that, for a couple of years. Was, and, yeah. and, and, and it had gone. And I think if you look at indie rock, so you yeah. go back to the late 80s and stuff. Yeah. It took a while until Geffen signed Nirvana yeah. to make Nevermind. So Condé Nast revamping. But I guess I never thought of it that way. But yeah, <laughs> David Geffen, billionaire guy, and he signs Nirvana. But I mean, it, throughout the entire 80s, there already yeah. was the hardcore and indie rock sort of thing happening, whether it's you know yeah. Sonic Youth or Replacements or Minor Threat. That had already happened, but it wasn't until the early 90s with then you had Nirvana and then Pearl Jam and all that stuff that it kind of went to that big major label stage. And so you want, your, your goal is to kind of help the big food media catch up culturally to what was happening. Yeah, like why not be cool? Yeah. I mean, my, my feeling was why not yeah. make a cool food magazine? And, and what's wonderful about Condé Nast is they kind of, <laughs> for better or worse, they give you the keys to the car and like just don't crash it. That's that's generous. Yeah, and if you don't crash it, <laughs> if you crash it, you lose your job. Yeah, but they let you make the magazine. I'm not I'm not using the word brand yet because at the time we were just a well, magazine. We're gonna get into that. Yeah, yeah but that's... they let you make the magazine you want to make. And I was like, all right, well, why not make something cool? It's not my money. I don't care. Like, just let's make something cool and, and make it happen. And I think it I think it'll resonate if we just write about what we really love and what we're really into. 
I think people will get it. If you're not sure, but that's all you can do. But you use the B word there. So now we yeah. fast forward to 2019 and Instagram has taken over food media and yeah. you guys are sort of a, you're an umbrella now of brands or titles, publications, I like say, websites. I like to say portfolio. Portfolio. Yeah. Okay, that's, but, and also. Not but, to bring up the now defunct Cunning Ass uh, financial magazine portfolio. <laughs> you remember that one? You were probably I too young. No, yeah. so that was, that was portfolio rose and fell mm. uh, right around the time I was get, finishing up at journalism school. Yeah, and, hard uh, rise, hard fall. Uh, and on top of that, now you're really getting into. I mean, you're becoming a video brand, like seriously. Or yeah, so you know, if you know, four or five years ago, you know, the the business side of Condé Nast really started imploring us editors to use the word brand. Like, you're not magazines, you're a brand, because like that's what they wanted to convey to the advertisers. And we're like, ah, don't, no, we're not. We're magazines. Don't tell us we're a brand because that just seemed like sell out, and we're just, just making products or whatever. And then. Over time, you realize, oh, well, yeah, we still make a magazine, but now we do podcasts. I love doing podcasts, and I did one at GQ years ago, then started one up at, at BA like four and a half years ago. Instagram starts happening. Twitter, you start making videos. You start launching verticals, and you're like, oh, my, yeah. Like, we're actually, we're not just a magazine. Like, we are a brand with an identity which traverses across platforms. And our goal and objective is how do you maintain your DNA across all of those platforms? They all operate differently and they all have slightly or sometimes substantially different readership, userships, viewerships, listenerships. Yeah. Uh, and how do you communicate to all those different people in a similar language, but not in the exact same language? That kind of brings me to your role specifically now. Like, what do you actually spend most of your day thinking about now? Can you even, is there a way to articulate that? Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, it really depends on yeah, what, what time of month and what's your crisis going on. No, um, I would say the big concern is the probably the phrase I use most, which gets annoying because anytime you use a phrase a lot, you're like, oh, God, I need to stop saying that. It's all right. Just lay it on me. It'll uh, be all right. On brand. Yeah. Because, you know, how does your Instagram feed feel connected to your videos, which should feel connected to your magazine, which should feel connected to your websites, et cetera. And so it's not so much the specific article or the idea as much as like, you know what, that just, it doesn't feel right. It, like that's not as funny as it should be, or it's not as provocative, or it's a little too high-minded, or like that, and like literally, I, I constantly texting my social media team, like guys, this post just it feels meh. It doesn't feel on <laughs> brand. It feels like a press release. Let's yeah. can we edit it and rewrite it and repost it? Yeah. Videos, we it, I, we're in a great place now with videos, but it took us a while working with the Condé Nast sort of parent sort of group and then figuring out what our identity was. But it's like these videos don't feel like us. What were the sort of failed experiments there? I mean, there were some videos. And this was as Kanye West was sort of getting into the video business and trying to figure out what worked. And and you know, you, if you just look at metrics like what's scaling on the internet and what do people want, we need to make those videos. And you're like, okay, but then they're just going to be kind of generic and not related to the brand at all. Are you talking about sort of the hands? H anything from hands and pans to any other pans, concept? Because yeah. like, you know, typically in internet video, there's a conceit or there's some sort of thing like, oh, everyone's making videos of like picnics across the world or whatever or like 20 ways to do so and so we should do a 20 ways to do so and so video and you're like but what why 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 are we why should we because it's going to scale and it's going to be you could put any brand name on there mm -hmm. and you would have no idea it's us so i hated that i was like i want our videos 
to unmistakably feel like us. And so what I wanted to start doing was shooting our videos in our test kitchen, which is this beautiful space on the 35th floor here of the World Trade Center, all these stoves and ovens and glass overlooking the Oculus and everything. I thought our test kitchen editors are super engaging, fun people. When I come to work, I just want to hang out in the test kitchen all day. Most of the editors do too, because they don't want to do their jobs. They just want to eat stuff and, gonna say, and make lunch. espressos yeah, and, and hang. Yeah. And I was like, well, if we all want to do that, I bet the viewer does too. Why can't we just shoot videos that makes the viewer feel like he or she is just hanging out with us in the test kitchen? So that was actually your idea specifically to start doing that? or That was like, at my dated analogy at the time was I wanted the test kitchen to feel like the sports center of food. I wanted to okay. feel like a set yeah. with a cast of hosts who yeah. come in and out, but there's a consistency among the hosts. So whether, you know... It's Dan Patrick or Stuart Scott, and I'm aging myself here. That's like right. they're different, but they feel like they're on the same frequency yeah. on a set. And you can tune in at any time, whether it's 11 p.m. or 6 p.m. or whatever. And you're like, oh, it's my friends at Sports Center, and they have a, they're funny, and I want to hang out with them, and they get it, and they've got a sort of an insider humor together. So I wanted to accomplish that with our test kitchen editors. The problem was, as we started shooting them, there's always someone who, well, this is video. Like, let's we'll explain how this is done. And the videos just felt really stiff. They were shot on tripods. There was like hair and makeup. It's like, hi, I'm Adam from Bon Appetit. It's just like, oh, it was like the most boring TV show you've ever seen. Yeah. It's like, that's not what we're going for. So at one point we just like, let's just try a experiment video. Like take the camera off the tripod, move around, walk and talk with me, just shoot something in the most relaxed manner as people are working in the test kitchen and cultivate the experience of what it is like if you're just cooking in the test kitchen. It sounds like a lot of your job, and I'm being reductive mm. here, but a lot of it is saying, no, that's not right. What's funny with that is a job of an editor is like, your job is ultimately to make judgment calls. And whether it's an article or whether it's an idea or whether it's a new platform you're trying to launch, it's like, trying to decide what is right and what isn't. And sometimes it's hard to say why something is right. It takes several years often for the staff to get like, no, oh, that's not BA or that, um, yes, that is. And to have that like, collective mind. Well, exactly. Sort of, yeah. And they have to work together and they have to go through the motions. And, you know, you, you sort of get it. And if you look at good brands out there, brands with a strong voice, like what Stella Bugby's does over at The Cut, it's like you read a piece in The Cut, you're like, oh, that's that's such a cut piece. That is very pointed by her to sort of establish that point of view and voice. But then the editors then sort of inherit and sort of take on that point of view. And then they're the ones who are yeah. making the call. You're training your staff in a way, just saying, not this, this, not this, this, and eventually. Yeah. And, yeah. What's, and what's really cool about that is ultimately, in the beginning, you've got to say things over and over and over again. And you're like, God, I, I'm sick of hearing myself talk. I feel like a schmuck. And then they start to run with it. And then the staff comes up with ideas and makes judgments that you never would. And you're like, oh, that's so cool. Like, yeah. I never would have thought about that because they're sort of taking it and taking it in their own direction. And like, if you look at our sites, like Healthy-ish or basically, like, those are ideas we cooked up. But like, what Amanda Shapiro, our Healthy-ish editor, or Emil Astonic, our basic editor, like, they've taken those verticals and directions that I never would have imagined. And that's the kind of the most rewarding thing. It sounds sort of also like the line about politics, right? Where it's like, if you feel like you've said something too many times, that's probably when you've just started saying it enough. It I would sounds say, like yeah, for I mean, an editor, it's... it's, it's you, it's hard to imagine, but it's like, you know, because people, and I'm the worst at this, people are always only half listening. 
They're like, yeah, 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 okay, I got things right, to know. Like, right so, now yeah. on this podcast, yeah. the listeners are like, <laughs> you know, one quarter tuned it's in. It's like your teenage kids, like, yeah, whatever, Dad. I remember when I was at GQ for years, and when Jim Nelson took over there, we got very sort of instructional and service forward with our fashion content, and we were literally teaching guys how to dress. And at some point in the early 2000s, it was like, all right, the skinny tie, skinny suit, tie bar, pocket square. And we're doing it and did it again and again and again, year after year. And like five years in, we're like, are we still doing the skinny tie thing? Like, shouldn't we move on? And I remember one morning I was doing the Today Show, like in the late 2000s, and I was in the dressing room with some, I forget who it was, like some other guest. And he's like, whoa, skinny tie, are those like a thing? And I'm like, yes, dude, we've been literally saying that for six years now. And like, and I realized like, oh, like, we've been saying that, but to the average guy, and this guy, he was a guest on the Today Show, and he was someone professional and successful and all that, but yeah. he was just getting that message. Yeah. You're like, yeah, it does take a long time. Just because it's obvious to you, whether you're an editor or whoever, it's not obvious to your staff, or it's not necessarily obvious to your audience, or to the sort of world at large. And now, I, it's funny, I work down here at World Trade, and Goldman Sachs is right across the street, and you're like, wow, those guys dress so well now. Finally. Finally. Yeah. But they all have like their slim suits and perfectly tapered dress shirts and yeah. slimmed. And like, yeah, they're like, they, I'm like, that was the GQ f- effect from literally like 10, 12 years ago. I mean, you know, back then you even managed to like pound it into my like college student head. I got to say that to yeah. Jim Nelson and his yeah. credit and then Jim Moore, creative director, they were very methodical and pointed and structured about it in a way I know that well well it's new editor-in-chief is sort of like moving away from that just because like hey we've done that let's sort of let's loosen the reins a bit so you say sometimes food is fashion right like you hear that a lot do you have the same effect where you have to kind of repeat yourself over and over again about food here or is it is a little different I think what's interesting about food same way I guess like people are always asked with the print magazine because on a typical print magazine you're working three to four months ahead yeah so if you're September issue comes out actually mid-August, ships mid-July. You're starting to put it together mid-June, which means you want the recipes re- tested and developed and all that by mid-May. So you're, you know, you're four or five months out is when you're actually ideating and creating that that issue. Like right now, my September issue lineup is due. And what's today? April April 4th? So yeah, I'm like, I already have to have my September issue in. Like The lineup has to be confirmed. And you're, so you're that far ahead. And then if you want seasonal stories in a print magazine, if I want beautiful summer tomatoes and people hanging outside, I need to shoot it this August for next August, oh, if that makes wow. sense. Yeah, so I'll you, shoot yeah. August 2019, and that article won't run until August 2020. Because you need your heirlooms in season. Yeah. And, ready. and you can't, I mean, you can fake it, but it's never as good. Yeah. And if you want that beautiful 7.45 p.m. summer light with the grill going and the beautiful tomatoes with olive oil and sea salt on them, like, yeah, you got to shoot it now. Oh, so you're always Or not now, of, but in August. Y- you have to be like kind of constantly displaced in time. Exactly. Mentally. So you're either working four months ahead or you're working a year ahead. Uh, you know, there's like a travel issue and half the time I forget about these things. I'm like, oh, fuck, we forgot to do that. All right, we'll always have to fake that. Oh, so what I'm coming back to is yeah. people always ask like, well, I mean- how can you be up on the trends if this and that happens? I'm like, you know what? The trends aren't that fast moving in the food world. You know, it's not like in women's fashion where something is in at that moment in the handbag or heels department and like a year later it's on to something else. 
and food, yeah, like smash burgers, for instance, like the crispy griddle, it's yeah. not, like those have been happening for like several years now. And yeah. if you put one in the magazine, people are still going to want to eat it. Yeah, you brought up David Chang, and yeah. you know, it's not like people have stopped obsessing about ramen. No, yeah, like, oh, seriously. I mean, yeah. if you look at the how long of a tail the ramen thing happened. I mean, Chang opened that in two thousand eight or whatever, two thousand seven, Momofuku, and then there's all these other iterations, and like, yeah, it goes and goes, and so. If you, whether you're working three months ahead or a year ahead, it's still going to be sort of of the moment. And also, is it delicious? And and that was the, the best piece of advice, kind of the only piece of advice I got from, I mean this in a good way, from Tom Wallace, the then editorial director at Condé Nast in early 2011. <laughs> he said, I mean, gave me all sorts of lay of the land stuff. And then he just said, you know what? Just make it delicious. Like, that's the only thing you got to worry about. And I was like, okay, whatever, Tom. And then I realized, I very much internalized that in that I realized if you made a magazine, and at the time we're just making a magazine, if you made a magazine with beautiful, delicious food photography, you could then layer on all the other cool design or hip people or funny references or all these other sort of pop culture, cultural sort of illusions that you were into. And people would go along with it as long as they still got their 30 recipes a month and beautiful food photography. And it's combining those two things. It's the, yeah, so it's like make yeah. sure you hold on to your bread and butter, yeah. and then take it's the foundation. Keep the, keep the cake, but the... you can change the color of the frosting. Oh, yep, there we go. My old publisher, Pam Drucker Mann, um, who's now like the chief business officer here at Condé, she was you know we in this meeting with the Louis Vuitton people at one point, and you know this was like when Mark Jacobs was the creative director of Louis Vuitton, and yeah, you see the ads in the magazine, the big spreads of like people with crazy hats on a 19th century train and this and that and like the big fashion shows and the head of Louis I was like sure like we do all that stuff but when you walk in our store on 57th street what you see are bags like our bags are right there like that's why people come there they're not coming in to buy a dress like they can but Louis Vuitton sells bags like that's what we do and so you you maintain your core product while sort of orbiting it with all these other cool things that sort of give it a personality and point of view. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to learn about your day. What time do you get up in the morning? 647. 647. Yeah. You beat me. Well, I have an 11-year-old, so he's <laughs> getting up. Well, he, he used to be the kid who would always get up, and now he's finally creeping into that tweens area, so he, now we actually have to wake him up. Yeah, you can't get him up. Yeah, so which is actually good on a Saturday. So, so you're up at 647. And what do you do for coffee? This is something no, I think I can, people would actually be interested in. I like. can talk about this. So typically, I'll go downstairs. I'll sort of get breakfast going for Marlon. A lot of times, I make this sort of flat omelet thing with him, some toast. He'll sometimes, you know, whether he's into yogurt or my wife, Simone, will make him a smoothie. Trying to get him to eat a little bit healthy because he's just, you know, he's very much a chicken tenders pasta kid, I'm afraid to say. Oh, so, no. What happened? I know. It, it's just, yeah. God I, is irony. Therapy session here. Uh and then I'll dart out the door to Cafe Grumpy around the corner on 22nd Street in yeah. Chelsea. And I get a cold brew every morning with 
not too much ice. I always tell the guy, because I hate when they put too much ice in. And yeah. then I'm like, I know, I want a lot of coffee. It's what I do. So I'll sit there for about 10 minutes, listen to a podcast. It might be the Daily New York Times or I listen to the Ringer podcast a lot, Bill Simmons or whoever. Then I'll go back home. And then I'll usually take another couple of like fancy ice cubes out of the freezer in the little silicon mold. What what's like the fa- is it like a big ice cube? Well, uh, there are like those ones fan- in those sort of rubbery silicon yeah, molds, so they're okay. a perfect square. Not oh, like okay. the big ones that you put in your whiskey, but like you know a one inch by one inch one. Yeah, I'll pop a couple of those out because again, like, I ask for not too much ice, so I'll make sure to get enough this coffee. Is such a but at this ritual. point, yeah, at this point, <laughs> the coffee is now not iced enough, so I'll drop a couple of more ice cubes in there. You're managing temperature as you go yes. through it, and especially in the summertime, you've got more melt and whatnot. And when I do get my coffee at Grumpy, I'll do like a, just literally a pinch of sugar. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I taste it. I think just mentally, I just want like a pinch. Uh, And I'll do like a splash of whole milk. And so I drink that. Some days I take Marlon to school. Some days I go to my trainer guy, Damien. Shout out to Damien. And then I'll get to the office on non-trainer days, you know, nine-ish a.m. And I usually make breakfast in the test kitchen. So my two options are typically... Crispy eggs fried in olive oil, just the eggs. Or if I'm not in that sort of egg mood, I'll do a um, rice cake with some, you know, that natural peanut butter sort yeah. of stuff with a little honey on there. Are you the only one in the test kitchen at that, at that hour? hour yeah. So you have that time to yourself. You kind of go down there and hang out, send some emails. So send some emails while frying an egg. Exactly, yes. That place gets cranking probably 10 a.m. Okay, so you've got a little yeah. time to yourself in the test yeah. kitchen. And then what happens there? I mean, do you want a specific day or do you eh, want a day? Let's take a day. Oh, well, I mean, today is funny. So yeah, today, what the <laughs> so hell? I was, let's talk about today. I was supposed to go see Damien, my trainer, but I got this company-wide email, required attendance, meet your you know, new CEO announcement. Oh. At Connie Nass. So they were introducing the new CEO, Roger Lynch, yeah. formerly of Pandora, and before that, Sling TV. So it was like this town hall sort of deal where uh, I had to be there at 9.30 sharp. But anytime Anna Wintour sends an email, if she says you need to be somewhere at 9.30, that actually means you need to be there at like 9.23. <laughs> yes. If you're not early, you're late, literally. Yeah. So you make sure you're there, seated and ready to go. When Anna Wintour sends an email, yeah. like, can you actually feel the shockwave in the in the office? It, like, does a, does a cool wind blow through? Well, we were talking about this in the in a video today that I was shooting, and that was the next thing I did after uh, the, the meeting, but... Molly Boz, one of our, oh, Molly, who was yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. So she was like, well, you didn't get my Slack yesterday? I'm like, no, I didn't get your Slack. I was at some photo shoot. And she's like, so I'm sitting there, my feet up on my desk. And all of a sudden, like, I turn around and someone's asking me, where's Adam? And it was Anna Wintour. I freaked out. I was so freaking out. And like, I was like, um, I don't know. He's, he had to run off. She's like, was well, he on vacation? She's like, no, no, no. He just had to go to a photo shoot. And she's like, okay, well, let him know. I'm looking for him. And I'm like, you didn't tell me that? She's like, I slacked you. And she did slack me. But like on my phone, the Slack thing doesn't pop up unless I look for it. Yeah. So it's, uh, I was just funny for it because like Molly meeting her, she's such a personable, low-key oh yes. presence. And Anna Wintour is such a famously imperial presence. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's also when, you, when you're caught unawares by Anna Wintour over your shoulder. Yeah. And she's got the sunglasses on and everything. But I love Anna because a couple of reasons. A, emails are always very clear, direct in like a sentence or two. Yeah. Uh, Which for you is good because that's less less to read through. Yeah, less to read. She always she anytime we get like nominated for an award or receive any sort of whatever, she will always send an email or often call. Like she'll like be in a car in Milan going to a fashion show and she will get on the phone and like call you to let you know congratulations. Oh, which is awesome. She's super yeah. supportive that way. And then meetings with her again. She's typically early, and the meetings are always boom boom boom. Like you're never in a meeting for more than fifteen minutes with her. Oh, that actually does sound, that sounds Which nice. is great. Yeah, I was I'm like, you know, every now and then we'll have lunch when it's more chit-chat. But it's like, 
you know, I can't even imagine all the things she's got on her plate, but it's like, all right, what do we have to talk about? Let's cross them off the list. And anytime you ask, if you mention, well, I'm, you know, I'm really having trouble with like the tech guys. We're trying to do this sort of website and like we can't get any traction on yada, yada, yada. And she'll like literally write it down. And like an hour later, you'll get a call from the head of tech. Yeah. Like, hey, Adam, are you free to meet me tomorrow? I want to address this problem you're having with your so-and-so. What is Wintour's official title now? Like, so she's, she's uh, just Anna Wintour. Um, no, <laughs> she, uh, Ashley title. She, she's still the editor in chief of Vogue, Vogue but, but her um, yeah. parallel title or whatever you call it is artistic director. So she's okay. she's for essentially Kanye, yeah. head coach for us editors in chief. I don't know if she uses yeah. the title head coach on her card or anything. Does it feel like you have her as like a coach? In terms of yeah. liaising with corporate and all that sort of stuff, she's the one. Let me know what you're having a problem with. Let me know who I can connect you with if, if you're struggling with something, what's going on with this. Hey, I want to give you a heads up about this new initiative that Connie Nass is working on. So she's that person. So she's, yeah, that, that corporate liaison. I would say David Remnick is more of our rabbi. You're like, <laughs> I don't know, David, can I just talk to you about, I'm just like this whole thing with this new sales group. I'm just like, I don't know what to do. And he's the guy that talks you off the ledge. Yeah. And he always, he's someone else. I, I don't understand him at all because- Last time I checked, New Yorker was a weekly magazine. And yeah. I've got a website and he hosts a radio show and all that stuff. But he's like, oh, sure, come on up. Yeah. Well, he and also manages to write books and like long well, yeah. articles. And, and you're in his office for an hour. I'm like, don't you have stuff to do? <laughs> hey, can we get lunch one of these days? How about tomorrow? And you're like, what? Yeah. Somehow. No, yeah. So that's a whole other Man control podcast you like can do with space them. and time is really the only yeah. the answer No there, idea. But. So, yeah, this morning we had this meeting. Did that. Then Molly Boz and I shot a video in the yeah. test kitchen starting at 10.30 a.m. What were you shooting? I had a recipe. I riffed on the famous chicken marbella or chicken marbella recipe from the Silver Palette cookbook, which was like the cookbook of the 80s. I'm not familiar with this okay. recipe. What is it? Well, again, if you grew up in the 80s, your mom made it. And like we used to have, it, we used to have chicken marbella for... Oh, I believe it should be pronounced Marbella. My mom pronounced it Marbella. This was the 80s, you know, whatever. Yeah. Chicken, like parts, basically you make a sort of a vinaigrette, an oil, red wine vinegar, oregano, prunes, olives, capers, a little brown sugar. You mix it all together, marinate the chicken, and then you cook the chicken in the marinade, like in a, in a dish. And it gets super fragrant and sweet and acidic and just delicious, like best thing you've ever had. And yeah. like everyone... Back in the day, everyone's had this recipe. I then sort of riffed on it, like having dinner at my friend Matt and Ted Lee's house years ago, where they did a pork tenderloin dish. And I was like, well, what if you took pork tenderloin and did the same treatment with the same marinade, seared the pork loin, then poured the marinade in, and then cooked it in this so it stayed super moist and tender? Pork tenderloin often dries out. Tried it, and it was delicious. And I was like, oh, that's so good. And so then somehow I brought it up recently, and we decided, like, oh, let's do it. And we Got it on the website, and Molly and I shot the video this morning. How often do you try to come up with recipes yourself? I mean, you're a home cook. Yeah, I do some. I will do. I got very porky recipes recently. (laughs) I did this pork and beans pasta recipe that it was really tasty, kind of like a ground sausage with white beans, like sort of you know Italian white beans, and and then I do it in some tomato paste. I also have like a broccoli bolognese recipe. That I think Molly and I might shoot as a video that she's debating whether it's actually bolognese. I don't know if it is bolognese, but it sounds good. Broccoli she's bolognese. very sensitive to that that yes. distinction. That so is... typically, I think our at least in this first video, there was a lot of uh, banter between her and me, and oftentimes her questioning my sort of pronouncements. And yes, her being the professional test kitchen editor, and me yeah. just me just being a regular editor. How often does something you come up with make it on the site? Oh, you so you know, I mean, 
I guess a lot of the times I'm the guy who I will write. I do a month a Monday newsletter every Monday, obviously, and I'll write about what I'm cooking in that schedule in that week. Typically, I'm the guy. I don't want to say I, whose job it is to dumb things down, but I'm constantly sort of badgering the test kitchen editors to make things a little bit more simple or a little bit more relatable or a little bit more home cookable. And I think we have such talented people in the test kitchen. The challenge for them is like they're really talented and they're in a test kitchen with every tool and ingredient at their disposal and all day to make something, which is very different than being an average cook at home on a Tuesday night at 7.15 p.m. And so I'm always trying to get them to like put your – it's 7.15, you've got two kids – are you really going to make this? What's the sort of thing you might be telling them to lay off of? Or like, is there a technique I mean, or like, something? Do we really need three types of chilies? Like, can't we just put one type of chili in this recipe? I mean, there's lots of those things. Like, I get it, but do we need the star anise and the cloves and the cinnamon? I bet we could get rid of the cloves and it would kind of taste the same. So there's a lot of those ones or there's a lot of steps. Like, why do we have to separate this from that, make each of it? Like, can't we just do this in one pot? And you just got to think like a home cook. And the funny thing is like they all do cook that way at home. And like Carla Music, our food director, just came out with a great book where cooking begins. And Carla is very much that type of cook. And, you know, working mother of two, married, great, confident home cook. And when she cooks at home, she cooks just delicious, sort of no-nonsense things, but, you know, really tastefully well done. And one thing I always say to Carla, like, I'm like, Carla, make that food the sort of defining food of the BA Test Kitchen. You're the boss down there. The food you cook at home should be the food that we're all cooking in the BA test yeah. kitchen. I'm guessing she has an instinct to reach a little bit more, though. Because yeah, because you want it. But also, yeah, yeah. it's going to be in the magazine. You want it to look good in the photo shoot. You yeah. want it to be not too basic. It's like, I get it. And I think the key to any successful creative endeavor is that there should always be some tension. You yeah. want one person pushing this way and one person pulling that way. And I've yeah, well, you always have that typically with the art department and the editorial department you know, them wanted to push things in a much more creative direction than I'm usually comfortable going. Like I always say, I want it to be cool, but I don't want it to be that cool. Um, And (laughs) so you're sort of having to rein them in. And, you know, like you want them to sort of fight for it. You want them to push. You'd rather have someone push the boundaries and you you as the editor have to sort of rein it back in than to not push at all and just get sort of mediocre stuff. Well, it's also, that's the classic job, the editors, to kill the writer's babies. Yeah. In this case, the the star anise is the baby. Also, you know, so I, you know, I write, I don't, I write a lot, you know, I write editor's letters, newsletter, I don't write a ton of long form stuff at the moment, but I've always been a writer who, happy to be edited, because nine times out of 10, the piece is gonna be better if it's a little bit shorter and if someone puts a set of eyes on it. Uh, of course, you you hope that that someone is a good editor. How much time do you spend on actual copy these days? Like actually editing words? Yeah, it's, you know, I'll still read every word that goes in the magazine from captions to the whatever the feature is in the feature whale to the head notes of the recipes. Depends what you're reading. Is the intro to the recipe informative and instructive? Is a caption in the front of the magazine does it have enough sass and attitude that you kind of smirk when you read it? Does that 3,000-word feature, like, doesn't make sense? Is it structured incorrectly? Or maybe it's structured correctly, but it's just, like, needs a little bit more pizzazz, you know? Yeah. So it, it really depends on what it is. And a lot of, and then a lot of the job with the magazine is also just, does it visually make sense? Is it working? Is the pacing, does it feel right? Are the pages structurally structured correctly? Because unlike the internet, you're working in a finite amount of space, basically, you know, 
you know, piece of typing paper and you got eight by 11 inches and what can you fit on that one page? And you only have so many words and images and headlines and you got to cram it all in there. So you, know, you got that. And then with the, you know, with the online, it's just nowadays we're all just creating so much content. It's insane. Yeah. You know? you're, you're telling me. Not to mention, yeah, not, <laughs> yeah. Even, not even talking about social. So a yeah. lot of times you read what you can online. More of it is like, is this a type piece we want to do? You have meetings about, hey, we should be doing more of these sort of articles or yeah. these sort of Instagram posts. Like, I don't like these kind of photos. There's too much going on. Let's focus on one thing. Or like, you know what? This post on the Instagram, it's not nearly fun enough. And I think like, and I, I'm harping on Instagram. We just actually got a national magazine award for uh, in, the, in the category best social media, which is amazing. And I, yeah. I think, I always say we had the best in the building, and I guess I can say we had the best in the country now. But I, you know, our team does an amazing job, and it's two people, uh, Rachel Carton and Emily Schultz. I love what they do, and I, it's such an important part of the brand now because that's how so many people, that's their way into Bon Appetit or Healthish or basically or Epicurious. I mean, honestly, that's how I follow along what we're doing. You know? How much time in your day are you on Instagram? Like, too much. Too much. <laughs> I'm just always on the phone. Like, yeah. Reflexive. If, I, if I'm in a meeting, that probably means I'm on the phone because I had I have no attention span anymore. What I like about my job, what I like is being able to do different things. And this goes back to GQ when I was a style editor. Like I wanted to do some reporting on fashion. I also wanted to keep writing about food. I got to do like a primer on like the 10 punk rock albums every kid should own. I got to do things on the movie industry, like to sort of use those different muscles in terms of service journalism, longer form written pieces, yeah. shoot videos, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I've always enjoyed doing a lot of different types of things. Yeah. And this, obviously, you've got your fingers in every single different pot. Yeah. And it's a, and so, you know, I still host a podcast once a week, which I love. Again, always I've always loved shooting videos or doing TV. Uh, I still like writing the newsletter once a week and the editor's letter once a month. Yeah. Editing, you know, all those things. And, you know, obviously, there are days where you're worn out and you're just exhausted, yeah. but being able to sort of keep jumping around is, is what keeps it interesting. So let's talk about the most boring part of mm. being an editor anywhere. Meetings. Yeah, meetings. What, what is your like first meeting that you typically have to do or like of the week? What is like, what what are the meeting, What are your standing meetings? Well, the most boring meetings, we have these, like, so we were launching this OTT channel, OTT yeah. app, whatever. The thing when you're on your Apple TV or whatever, and you yeah. call it up and there's a thing. So it was a Bon Appetit version of that, which you can access all of our test kitchen videos, et cetera, and some exclusive content to that. You can watch it on your nice flat screen. And it was really cool. And it launched uh, like a month or so ago. And there was a series of meetings leading up to the launch. And I get it. It's like, all right, what's the marketing promotional plan for this? You know, the tech side of it, the content creation. But we're in this meeting and I'm looking around this room. And this was a weekly meeting. And there was 27 people in there. I could probably name four of them. Yeah. And I'm like, who are all these people? <laughs> Just like, and why are they here? Yeah. And like 23 of them are not talking. Four of them are talking. Yeah. And you run, technically you run all this. So uh, well, yeah. I mean, I do and I don't though, but we have yeah. like Kanye Nass Entertainment and then we have the yeah. video and we have the market. And it's like, yeah. you know, there's a lot of different shareholders or stakeholders, whatever we say. So that's the one that, I'm just like, oh my god, this is so depressing. I mean, it's it's like yeah. know, I'm typically just texting with one of my other guys and making jokes and stuff to get through the meeting. That drives me crazy. One thing, you know, every month we always have to have an ideas meeting, typically for the issue ahead, uh, and that often, you know, what ideas that come up in a monthly ideas meeting often sort of sprinkle into different platforms and whatnot, but. I always struggled with that meeting because you want everyone to come with ideas and be fired up and like, let's 
shoot the shit and banter and yeah. like you know throw ideas around and typically you've got a few loud people who dominate the meeting a lot of other people are kind of recessive i get it they then are scared to talk up a lot of the younger staffers it's not a sort of democratic you, you like to think it is like hey i know everyone's welcome to talk but it doesn't mean you're comfortable talking it took me years to realize that <laughs> um and then this past year Julia Kramer, my deputy editor, and Rel Rothstein, features editor, they're like, all right, they've sort of implemented a new format, which kind of spun out for like a different meeting, but it's like, all right, and this is not unusual in the world of editing and media, but it, it was for me just like, go around the table, there's 25 people, everyone has 90 seconds, pitch one story. So what's like the one story you want to get in the magazine? Go. Oh, I actually like that format. And it says, boom, boom, yeah. boom, everyone has to talk. And people are less intimidated because everyone's talking, so you don't have to raise your hand. And yeah. you literally go around, and you know we can pause. Like, oh, so what do you mean? Like, if you want to do that, would you do it this way? Ask some questions. But it's a shorter meeting. It's a much more efficient meeting. It's a much more productive meeting. Uh, and certainly, you know, some months are better than others in terms of ideas. But there's, like, a purpose and a focus to it. And I don't leave the room angry anymore. I'm like, oh, that was good. You've rationalized it. Yeah. So yeah. it's been hard for me to realize that not everyone is like me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's yeah. a, I'm a pretty loud, argumentative sort of person, and not everyone acts or thinks that way. Yeah. And, anyone who likes showing up on a podcast has some loud, discursive part yes. of their personality. I'm yeah. always happy to be the loud person in the room. Other people aren't. That doesn't mean they don't have something great to add to the conversation. And, you know, you'd get those people who literally would not say a word and then after the meeting would email you three great ideas. And so, yeah, it's just, it's that's been a process. And, you know, in this entire editor, being editor-in-chief, like, I got the job with, I don't know, there's no training. Like, you're the editor-in-chief. Yeah, have at okay, it. Okay, have at it. I've never, hey, I, I don't even know what a PNL is. I've never managed a person before, any of that. So at, this is back in 2011. So it's it's been a long learning experience, and I, I still don't think I'm a great people manager. I think I'm a good editor. I think I'm a nice guy ish, you know. But you know, managing and leading a team is is hard, and it takes a while to sort of learn and, and realize your mistakes. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So how much of like your day is basically kind of delegating to your other editors to do things like just saying you do that you do that i think that's also something i've learned like early yeah. on we had a in 2011 a literally a completely new staff top to bottom i kind of very clearly knew like the magazine i wanted to make but it took a lot of communicating to convey that which should have because yeah. like, it was clear in my head but these people had never worked with me before they the repetition thing yeah, again exactly. the repetition there's certain words you use that you think should be common language that aren't in like terms what? of like Oh, let's do a cool package, like a so-and-so. And they're like, well, what do you mean by a package? Like, oh, like a multi-page thing with little articles and pie charts and all that. Yeah. And each sort of headline speaks to the next.
Kleenex and it flows over the course of 12 pages and they just kind of look at you and like, well, like all that, that, that was before. supposed to be in package. Yeah. <laughs> and like, well, I spent a bunch of years in GQ yeah. or, you yeah. know, maybe you worked in New York Magazine and you've done those things. But if you haven't, you're just like, wait, what? You know, like, hey, these headlines, like, they're not fun. They should be so, have so much more attitude. Like, why don't they have attitude? Like, oh, well, you used to work at the New York Times. Like, we're, they don't do that, you know? So it takes a while. But now I'm at a point there are certain days, I don't want to say, I don't want to get myself in trouble where I don't have enough to do, but <laughs> it's <laughs> like, because I do have enough to do, but I, I feel like it's such a talented, empowered team, like Carrie Polis is our digital director, Joy Kramer, our deputy editor, you know, I, I've got mentioned Sasha, I mean, so Sasha's our web editor, but I mentioned Amanda and, and Emil from basically Healthyish. Carla Music's our food director, Michelle Outland's our creative director. It's like, You've got a lot of very talented, empowered people heading up all these departments. And while I constantly need to be in communication with them and talking to them and ultimately sort of signing off on things, they're smarter and harder working than I am on, in any one of those fields. It's not that the editor-in-chief is smarter or more talented than anyone necessarily. It's just that it has to be one person's job to keep an eye on all the things and to have a game plan and to make sure that all of those different departments are adhering to that game plan. Because those person's job is to focus on their turf. And this is what they should be doing. And it's your job to sort of like, hey, that's great, but let's pull it over this way so it dovetails with this, which is also jibing with that. And looks and sounds like yeah, don't have a Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's your job. You're sort of just checking on every little thing, pulling it all together. You're like, you know, you're hurting the cattle or whatever making sure it's all headed in the same direction because they're all doing their own thing, which is what they should be doing. What time do you usually get down to the test kitchen to like try out food and recipes? I'm not a, usually the, the problem is this, usually the tastings happen sort of mid afternoon, like 3.30, but yeah. I've eaten lunch and I'm going to eat dinner. Like I don't want to eat a meal at 3.30. So I'll sort of graze here and there. I'll ask questions. I should probably go to the tastings more than I do. You need to tell them to take out the star anise. You know, you exactly. <laughs> well, and, and or sometimes I'll you know I'll, I'll opine on the Slack channel where I'm looking at a dish and I'm like, why is the I was talking to Andy Barragani today? I'm like, those planks of feta cheese are way too big in the corn salad. Like you're picking up three corners of corn on your fork and you've got this giant piece of cheese that makes no sense. How do we get the cheese more in, in line? Anyways, this is dumb stuff, but those are the sort no, of But that's actually fascinating. You, you see a picture of the salad yeah. and you think that actually pops into your head immediately. Well, it doesn't make, yeah, because like the, the, the size of the cheese to the kernels of grilled corn and corn salad are disproportionate. In one forkful, you'd have this giant piece of cheese and some corn. We had the same thing with this stir fry dish where you had these big green beans, but then small pieces of chicken and then you had some cashews and it's like, if you go, you know, any Chinese meal, it's like they're often cut the same size, A, to cook at the same sort of pace. Yeah. But also when you have a fork or a spoon, you get a little bit of everything and it's proportionate. That's the kind of the, the French technique thing of keeping yeah. everything the same size. Or the brunoise exactly. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you can tell that from a photo. Was that something you had to like train yourself to think about in terms of food, like when you started, or was it? No, something, or always, you've always had that sensibility. I mean, well, there's food, like what I like, but then I, I've always been very visual as an editor. Going back to magazines, yeah. I always saw a page before I read a page. Like I would imagine what the page would look like, then the words could come next. And I was always an editor who worked really closely with the art department. And at GQ, I was able to do that pretty well without getting in a fight with the art department. Whereas <laughs> most editors, like there's always a bit of hostility between art and edit because yeah. art wants to be right, edit wants to be right, and 
And so, for like a magazine magazine, that's actually like those are two equal, co-equal branches. Well, they are for our magazine. Like this yeah. B- BA is a very visual magazine. You know, it's like this is not New York Times magazine where we're running multiple thousand word articles. It's like if the food doesn't look good, the magazine, no one cares. And people want to see pictures of food and then they have to fit the recipes. And so it's like I'm always I probably always leaned a little bit more visual than words, although I really care about the voice and the point of view and what it is we're communicating to the reader. But I just like in a magazine like this, I just don't have space for thousand word articles, multiple thousand word articles. I remember Sam Sifton at the Times was like, dude, like love the magazine, but can we just get a little bit more to read in there? And I'm like, yeah, but then I got to take out this story. And then people complain that there's not like, where are the beautiful pictures? Like, well, Sifton wanted a 3,000 word piece on whatever. Yeah, no, never listened to a, a newspaper writer. Exactly. What does he know? <laughs> That's totally. Yeah. Not his genre. You don't necessarily make it to the tastings, but you'll see it. You get some input that way. Yeah. And then other times during the day, I'll just be down there wandering about and you'll see as they're making something, you can kind of sort of just sort of dip in like, oh, what are you making? Like, what about this? Like, oh, that's interesting. Would you ever consider adding a bit of this or that? Or why did you choose that noodle? We had a whole thing with this shrimp scampi pasta dish, which is like, that's awesome. I get it. I can taste it. And Molly was developing. I'm like, why are we using fusilli? That looks weird. <laughs> we got in a huge fusilli debate on Slack. So the thing about your test kitchen chefs is that they, you know, like Molly is a professional chef. Like she came up through like, you know, actual kitchens. Yeah. <laughs> did So you are the editor in chief, but did you ever feel like a little nervous about, you know, criticizing or giving feedback to someone who actually professionally cooked, whereas you, you hadn't? Short answer, no. Uh, <laughs> this is, goes back to the loud discursive thing. You Now, you assume, and funny, when we were doing this video today, you assume that they have a far better grasp of technique, perhaps. Uh, we were doing this thing where we were basting the pork tenderloins, and he's like, no, no, you need to tilt the pan this way, away from you, or towards you, whatever. It was a whole thing like, oh, that's, I, I get it. That's what I see like in these like sexy food videos where they're in slow motion, and I'm like, that's how you do it. Didn't know that. But- you know, you could make decisions about uh, that are aesthetic that I'm like, that just doesn't look good. I'm going to tell you what looks good in a photo and it's not fusilli. Or it's why is that pasta in a bowl? Because there's, I know there's all this delicious, buttery, garlicky, parsley sauce in that pasta, but that sauce is all sitting at the bottom of the bowl and you can't see the sauce because there's a pile of pasta and shrimp atop it. If you put that on a plate, like looking at this cover of the April Bramatit, and had some like sort of long, twisty linguine, you would see the pools of buttery sauce on the plate itself. Uh, And then all of a sudden that would make you hungry. So it's like, let's go from plate to bowl. Let's talk about the pasta shape. Those sort of things could sort of impact the recipe for the better. Again, like you can be a professional chef. You can be a better editor than you are a writer, for instance. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be telling the writer how to improve his or her piece. Yeah. And I guess food critics aren't no. usually or not. Yeah. And let's be honest, chefs. like you've yeah. been to plenty of restaurants that aren't so good. Fair enough. Just because they're professionals doesn't mean they're good at it. No, that's very point taken. Yeah. Late afternoon, what are you doing? Back L- half your day. Late afternoon, if you need to talk to me about something important, that is the worst time because I'm just I'm done. <laughs> I have no attention span. I'm just like, yeah. I'm basically useless. Have you had of, another coffee at this point? I always get a coffee. Like I'll, make, I'll go down to the test kitchen and I'll make an iced espresso. I'll use the espresso machine, the La Marzocca machine, and the little short sort of glass, pull a shot, walk to the sink, splash of water in there, pinch of sugar again, three ice cubes. We got these great uh, 
that was the only thing when we moved to this building four years ago. It's like, can we please get a cold draft ice machine, cold draft with a K? And that was like the kind of the ice machines that the bars use that have the big block, like nice solid block of ice cubes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like the good stuff. Pain in the ass to run, took the whole thing with like getting the right water filter, yada, yada. But we have that. So I'll take like, take the little glass, hot espresso, three ice cubes, splash of whole milk. And it's just like a little short, short guy. So you've had your kind of like a cold cortado in a way. Kind of, yeah, kinda. without steaming the milk. That yeah. becomes just too much of a thing. And you end up wasting so much milk. In order to get it nice and creamy and foamy, you have to end up using far more milk than you would ever pour in your coffee unless you're doing like a latte, which is insane. You've had your espresso con leche yes. cold. But Thank you. Yeah. They, and you're still useless because it's a late afternoon. So, so that's like three o'clock, yeah. But by, by the time like five o'clock. So at yeah. that point, there's always those sort of chores, those menial things you need to get done. But if it's like a decision that requires actual focus and actual creative thinking five to six is not a good time to do it and i've never been like a late worker even going back to college like i never cut class i never asked for an extension never turned in a paper late i would just get things done on time and i would just do that by sort of you know i'd start taking notes on monday then go to the library on tuesday and highlight things and then by friday the paper was done so i was never an all-nighter guy and the only reason why is it's like i just couldn't i wasn't good at that you know i try to get most stuff done during the daytime you know certain things fall through the cracks certainly but also when you're at night i mean the one thing about being an editor-in-chief is that you know your brain is never not on the job it's not that you're working all the time it's just that you're always kind of thinking about the job which is fine i like that and i'm always someone from my, one of the editors have to text me about something or if i have to text you know rachel about some instagram post more than happy to do that at nine at night so what time do you finish usually what time are you out of here well, it's funny there's that winter summer thing you know the winter time it's yeah. like 5 30 and it feels like it's been dark for an hour and a half it and does, yes. what am i still doing at work yeah no and we're all living like ice age style yeah <laughs> and then the summertime it's like 7 30 and it's like gorgeous you're like oh my god it's 7 30 what am i still doing here i think that definitely affects it but you know so maybe now yeah maybe i'll leave like at 6 30 always try to be home uh, by seven and then a lot of times you know my wife and I will either cook a few nights a week, order in a few nights a week, go out a couple nights a week. Uh, I typically do, I always end up doing the dishes, what, and often a lot of the cooking, but not always. What would you say is one of your go-to meals to cook at home? Every Monday night is often chicken cutlet night in America. And that's a tag team. Sometimes Simone will do it. Sometimes I will. But you know, get nice pounded thin with the panko breadcrumbs and everything, fry them up, get them super crispy. I'll often make like some sort of like spicy mayonnaise situation or last night i chopped up a bunch of um pickled ginger sort of that folded sounds, that into the yeah. mayo with a little soy sauce and then it's like all right are we gonna do like a shaved fennel salad with that or in the summertime maybe get great tomatoes and arugula it could be some sort of like maybe we're just gonna steam some broccoli like you sort of pair it with those things it leads me to an important question which is is the fried chicken a concession to your kid who wants the nuggets? Or is it the reason why he now likes chicken nuggets mm. so much? Well, <laughs> I think if, I think it was one of those things. Like if you're gonna if he's gonna eat that, he should eat good versions. But anyway, if everyone knows again, whether you're gonna call it chicken katsu or chicken schnitzel or chicken cutlets, like it's one of the best meals ever. And if you make it well and you season the pounded thin breast and then you season both the flour, the egg wash, and the panko and you fry it in oil at the right temperature, it's just like I can just like keep on eating those. And I like to slice it up like in the Japanese restaurant where they serve it to you in little slices. And I'll take each little slice and I'll dip it in the mayo. Yeah. I'll have a little white rice with that and then some cool salad deal. I mean, that's like that's kind of my perfect meal. 
and both you and the kid. Oh, yeah, me and Marlon. So Marlon loves it. I love it. Simone loves it. It Uh, works. That's it. And then the other sort of go-to meal, which is we do a lot, not all the time, but like I do love the Sunday night uh, spaghetti meatball night, homemade meatballs and homemade sauce. And like I'm not Italian. I wish I was sometimes. And every time you do that and we make the garlic bread and then make some sort of big romaine salad, you're like, oh my God, this is so good. Why don't we do this every Sunday? Yeah, no, it's Sunday should be red sauce night. Exactly. Whether or not you're Italian, it's never not a good move. Uh, The only problem is like, that's also one of the things like I just can't stop eating. And then I'm like, all right, I'll have one more meatball. One more. And then I'm doing the dishes and I'm like, all right, I'll just have this meatball. Who's going to (laughs) know? Yeah, I made 24 of them. I can have another one. It's going to be okay. Uh, This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for taking the time to talk food and yeah. editing. Thank and you for uh, getting me out of meetings and stuff. Hey, anytime. Thank you. That is it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, as always, I'm going to ask you, beg you, plead you to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Otherwise, write to me at working at slate.com. Again, that is working at slate.com. I'll answer any question you have, any topic. I don't care what it is. It can be about physics. It can be about economics. It can be about the podcast. Just email me. Anyway, as always, Working is produced by the indispensable Jessamyn Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. Catch you next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.